LBZ original. Isn't this exciting? We're going live soon. It's real. It's real. It's real. I just tweeted well, it. Oh. You're, on a, you're on a real podcast now. Welcome to Studio BZ. I am Paula Evan. Good and afternoon. I'm, and I'm and John Keller. Hi, Paula. Hi, John. Good to see you again, as Likewise. always. So we're going to talk about Mark Zuckerberg, starting off with his testimony before Congress over this whole Facebook debacle and uh, an interesting article in Business Insider about his behavior all the way back at Harvard in 2004. Once a sleazebag, always a sleazebag. That's what I always say. It's, wow. This is the, I've always thought even from the most superficial knowledge of him from people seeing that movie, The Social Network, even if you didn't find the Winklevoss twins, the most yeah. sympathetic characters in the world, he stole the he, idea. He ripped off their idea right? and he ran with it and he's been running ever since with right from the beginning. minimal regard for the people he's running over, but we'll yeah. get into that. Yeah, so we'll get into that. We're also going to talk about transportation issues in and around Boston, parking tickets and fees going up, and trains breaking down. It's a mess and Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has come forward with a plan to ease the mess. We'll talk about that with a top a transportation policy analyst. You're also going to hear my conversation with Leslie Visser, which was fascinating because not only did she talk about her time at Boston College and the Boston Globe in her the beginnings of her career. Yeah, she was a trailblazing incredible. female sports journalist. Yes, yeah. and, and she has interesting things to say about how she handled being in locker rooms with men and how she chose to interact with them and, and handle that. So Leslie Visser was, was really, really interesting. She has a new book out, so we'll talk about that. Our city is truly the hub, the hub of the universe. So you were talking to this, I mean, I think it's hard to be a transportation expert in and around Boston, actually. Well, look, but what's the latest? Well, uh, as anybody who's tried to get around the greater Boston area recently knows, the traffic situation, always bad, has gone from bad to horribly, horribly worse. Now, forget about just rush hours. Any time of the day, you're likely to sit in gridlock traffic. Uh, public transit has not exactly been covering itself in glory. Hello, that means you over at the MBTA. Uh, thousands and thousands of people are turning to buses that themselves sit in gridlock traffic. So where's then the answer there? Then you add the whole fleet of Uber cars now that just pull over wherever and stop traffic and let people out. And all of this comes in the context of us being named in a new survey as the second most expensive city to park in, trailing only, of course, New York City, which is outrageously expensive. But what are we going to do to fix this? Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has come up with a plan. And I had a chance to talk at some length with uh, Chris Dempsey. Uh, from an organization of advocates who monitor and advocate for transportation policy reform. You may remember Chris from his work with the No Boston Olympics group. He was very effective. That helped keep that boondoggle from coming in here. And we got a chance to drill down into some of his most pressing concerns. Is this a good idea? John, I think it is. And obviously no one likes when fees and fines like that go up. 
But I think you can make a very strong case here that this is going to get to the fundamental problem, which is that, as you said, it's just too hard to get around greater Boston right now. We are dealing with the worst congestion that we've had in Massachusetts history. The average driver in greater Boston wastes $2,000 per year sitting in traffic. That's a combination of lost wages increased fuel costs and the increased cost of goods throughout society. So we need to be smarter about how we move around. And I think Mayor Walsh is showing real leadership here by saying, look, we're going to try to prioritize making our streets more efficient, getting our buses moving faster, fixing our signals so that our signals are more coordinated and that they work better. And the way that we're going to pay for it is increase fines on the folks that are actually creating some of that congestion. The reality is, as much as all of us like to double park, when we double park, we are creating congestion by shutting down a traffic lane. And so if you can reduce some of that activity and make things more efficient with the revenue that's generated, everyone's going to win. Well, I'm hardly a fan of double parkers, but uh, one of the reasons people sometimes double park is they can't find a space. Aren't we essentially saying, look, uh, we're going to punish you if you come in here? Uh, we're not going to provide for more options for you to park. We don't want you bringing your car in. If you do come in and you violate the law, you're going to pay through the nose. I'm fine with that. But at what point uh, do you start saying, uh, don't bring your business here? Well, I think we're already saying that, John, by the facts that, fact that we're not fixing our congestion. Mm-hmm. I mean, the congestion alone is causing people to say, I'm not going to drive into the city. I'm going to go somewhere else because I know I'm just going to get stuck in traffic and be wasting my time. So the reality is you're paying for that congestion one way or the other. You're either paying for it and maybe an increased fine if you double park or you're paying for it with your time today while you're stuck behind a whole bunch of other people that are double parked. So there's real costs to getting around, which we're all acknowledging. And I think what the mayor is saying is maybe we should look at rebalancing that a little bit. You know, these are the, this is the first time in 10 years that these fines have been increased. So it's been a long time since they've gone up. And let's go back to where the revenue is going to go. In addition to improvements for transit, it's also going to go to hiring more engineers to look at how, our, how to get our streets moving better for the people that do decide they want to drive in. An example of that is they're going to be looking at creating pickup and drop-off areas. Given the proliferation of Uber and Lyft and other ride-sharing in the last 10 years, which 10 years ago, those didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. Now that those are here, they need places to pull over instead of pulling over in a travel lane, which is slowing the rest of us down that are in cars. And so this, it's, this is far past time, and frankly, We think the mayor is doing absolutely the right thing here by saying we're in a new world. Things are getting worse. They're not getting better. We need to change up some of these old approaches that haven't been working for us. Well, I don't recall how long ago it was, but I remember when they started doing restaurant week uh, here in Boston. And I believe it was probably then Mayor Menino. Anything that happened in the last 30 years probably involved uh, the late mayor. Uh, the, The sense was that the city's restaurant industry, which is an important aspect of the city's economic mix, was getting killed uh, by just what you described, Chris, the fact that people were deterred from coming into the city. There are attractive options in in Cambridge and other near-in locations and also out in the suburbs, dining options that didn't exist. And people were forsaking Boston restaurants uh, specifically because of this reason. 
is there is Walsh's plan going to turn that around? Is anything going to turn that around, or is the message to restaurateurs and maybe some other businesses uh, is the message to them? It might not be cost effective to do business in the city anymore. Well, there's no silver bullet to these issues, John. But I, when I look at Boston, I see a city that's thriving. When I walk the streets of Boston, I see cranes in the sky building new buildings. I see lots of full, full storefronts with restaurants and new shops and all sorts of things and, and record numbers of visitors to Boston. And I think the population of Boston is at a, at a recent high now, not at its all time high, but at a high in the last 20 or 30 years. So <laughs> I think the city is thriving. And I think what mayor Walsh is saying is we can't continue to thrive and continue to grow if we don't manage our streets. Well, whether we like it or not, a lot of our streets were built two or 300 years ago before the era of the automobile. They never envisioned handling the traffic that they're handling today. And we're going to have to be proactive about that approach rather than sitting back and sort of just, you know, having a headache on a, on a daily basis with that congestion. I'll give you an example of this. One of the things the mayor is pushing, which we think is really smart, is getting buses moving faster. Now, it may be a while since you've been on a bus, John, but I ride the bus on a regular basis, as do over 300,000 Bostonians every year taking the bus. And some of those bus riders are the, sitting in the worst traffic of anyone. They suffer the worst from that congestion. What the mayor is saying is, let's have more bus lanes and more enforcement on those bus lanes to get those buses moving faster. And those buses are not just bringing patrons to restaurants, they're also bringing workers to those same restaurants. So if you're a restaurateur and you're trying to hire a good solid staff that you can you can rely on to get to their shift on time, you need those buses working well. And the mayor is saying, I want to improve that and not just live with the status quo. I mean, you mentioned to me the key word earlier, Chris, balance. Uh, the city is about to test out its first dedicated bus lane in many years down Washington Street in Roslindale. They're creating an additional lane by taking out parking spaces on the inbound lane of Washington Street in the morning rush hour. Seems uh, sensible and logical. I, I don't know if how thrilled those business owners are. Uh, in an ideal world, what's the proper balance between the need for economic activity to do business and the fact that with the weather being the way it is and our transit systems uh, having a lot of holes in it, uh, people are going to still continue to want to use their cars. What's the right balance between those two uh, apparently conflicting imperatives? You know, there's no one size fits all solution here. Every street is going to look a little bit different. Boylston Street is going to look different from Newberry Street, is going to look different from Melnia Cass, is going to look different from Dot Ave. But what I will say is this, and this is an incredible statistic there are some streets in Boston, and Washington Street in, in Forest Hills is one of them, where 50% of the human beings that are moving on that street are doing it on a bus, and yet the buses represent only 2% of the vehicles. That is a really incredible thing, and it shows how important that bus system is. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be willing to give those folks a little bit of a priority because they are cramming in on a bus and they're and we're getting a lot of throughput out of that. You know, it used to be 10 or 20 years ago that traffic engineers thought their only job was to move traffic and move cars. And now they're starting to realize, and I think this is smart, that it's about moving people. So how do we get as many people going up and down these corridors? And I will say, Johnny, you're absolutely right that sometimes there is a trade-off between 
the, the regional transportation solution, like a bus lane and the ability for someone to park in front of a small business. And, and that's why I say there's no one size fits all solution. What might work well on Washington street. And by the way, we're just still testing that out. The city's testing that out. So we don't know what will end up there is going to look very different than the solution you might have on a different street in Roslindale. Um, but the important thing here is that we take a humble approach. We realize that what we have today is not working and we try out and test out small changes and small differences and see what's going to work well. There are other cities that are tackling their their transportation and their congestion problems in creative ways. We should be taking a page out of their book, not knowing that it's going to work here in Massachusetts, but at least trying it out and seeing if it might. Chris, one last thing. Uh, Unless the Supreme Judicial Court rules it unconstitutional, there will be a question on the November ballot uh, colloquially referred to as the millionaire's tax. I believe the formal name is the fair share amendment. It'll slap a 4% income tax surcharge on people with incomes of over a million dollars. And uh, the proceeds are in part dedicated toward transportation and infrastructure. Is that going to solve our broader regional problem? I don't know that it's going to solve it, John, but I think it will help. We know that for decades now, we've been underinvesting in our transportation system, and that's why we see some of the congestion we have today. As you think, as you know, I think in 2017, Massachusetts was ranked the number one state in the entire country. We were number one in education, we were number two in healthcare, and we were number 45 in transportation. So we've got a long way to go on transportation, and the fair share amendment can be a piece of that solution. But again, no silver bullet here. This is about all of us trying out new things and embracing this new world where we're, take, we're thinking about moving people and not just moving cars. Chris Dembski from Transportation for Massachusetts. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, John. So, you know, we we have to try, right? We have to try a lot of things. It's sort of a great notion. But, of course, the question is always, where is the money going to come from? And how is it that other cities, when people fly to other countries or go to other cities, they seem to always feel as though it looks so high tech. It's so much better than Boston. Why are we stuck in yesteryear all the time? You know, you look at Amsterdam, if you've ever had the opportunity to go there. I have not. Uh, they have, Oh, it's one of the most fantastic cities in Europe. Um, And there's a lot of congestion in Amsterdam, but even though it's a comparable climate to what we have here in Boston, which I think speaks to the concerns a lot of people have about, you know, how am I going to give up my car from November through uh, April uh, before the weather starts to become a little bearable? They have roughly the same weather and they have a heavy bike-oriented uh, commuter base. Uh, bikes are heavily used as a way to get around the city. But they have trolleys also. And uh, it, it's actually kind of frightening right. to move around in the inner <laughs> core in Amsterdam because you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, that trolley's going to hit that, there, that, there are unwritten that rules. woman who's carrying her baby <laughs> in her bike basket. But somehow it works. Yeah. We have a lot to learn from other cities. But uh, the, the core question that you heard me getting into with Chris Dempsey there is how do you strike the right balance between economic activity 
and the need for traffic to move. One idea that I've been thinking a lot about lately is I have a relative who works for that huge company, Salesforce, in San Francisco. And there, they just built the Salesforce Tower, now the tallest building in San Francisco. The CEO, Mark Benioff, who grew up there, cares about the community. He paid to completely renovate the BART station, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, right under the building, because I think the attitude was, we're suddenly injecting 60,000 thousand new people here. We have to pony up, renovate this, and now it's the Salesforce stop on the BART, you know. And I thought, you know, somebody I think around here needs to start telling our politicians if we're going to have all these huge high-tech companies, there's such a building boom going on, which is fantastic. They're going to start pressuring more of these companies to do the same. They're going to have to pay some money to help renovate the T, help update the infrastructure. Maybe Bezos will be our benefactor. If Jeff Bezos comes here, there might have to be an Amazon renovation of the T. Well, that's actually a damn good question, which is are they going to be forced, if they want to come here, to pony up for this stuff and not just fob it off on, well, our employees will pay the income tax? No, that's not enough. But I think one of the things that maybe is driving this conversation locally in a way it hasn't been driven in many years is the tangible, apparent debacle of the Boston seaport, a new neighborhood, really a new mini city within the city that was built without an apparent thought to how people were going to get in and out and around, and it's a disaster. And now, just within the last year, we've seen our first new dense residential construction down in the North Station area where there's no parking. Right. I, the, the fact that that building was approved with no car parking garage well, was unbelievable But they're to saying to the people that want to move here, sorry, if you think you're going to move into these pricey condos right. and have your hog handy downstairs in the garage at all hours, uh-uh. You're going to come here because you're willing to adapt your lifestyle to use ride chairs, to use walking, yes. to bike. And that's, a, I think, an important change. You're kind of saying to those people, if you're going to live in that area, you have to rely on public transportation. But I'm sure then they get here and they're like, what tra- what public transportation? Yeah, not I reliable. <laughs> right. That is going to be the big problem. The other thing in we were talking about this earlier is coming having grown up in central mass the huge difference now from the 70s, 80s, even in the, to the 90s is that like New York the circle around inner city Boston is getting bigger and bigger pushing out uh, growing up in Worcester in the late 70s, 80s nobody's parents worked in Boston your parents worked in Worcester County. That's why you lived out there. Now, all of the Shrewsbury, Northborough, Grafton, they're bedroom towns for Boston. So I do think that, unfortunately, people in Boston who are used to zipping in and out in 15 minutes, depending on traffic, it's going to turn into like a New York situation. You're going to have to look oh, yeah. further and further away. And it's getting larger. I mean, we were talking about even just Andover going north and north, but it's people living in New Hampshire and coming into Boston for work. Yes. And how much further can this go? Yeah. That's a great point, Brooke. And by the way, you should identify yourself. Here. I know. We didn't I know. People just know who you are. You're it's just okay. a disembodied voice. We always hear. We, I know. I don't know why just we didn't. the voice. We didn't, we didn't introduce. <laughs> Go ahead. Introduce yourself. Hi. I'm Brooke. I'm the random producer that sometimes chimes in. <laughs> We're excited. So you made a great point, though, because we've been talking about Boston, Boston, Boston. But the transportation issues affecting smaller cities across the state yeah. are profound. 
Uh, there is in uh, Governor Baker's uh, current budget proposal, they're, they're talking about cuts in the so-called RTs, the regional transit systems that serve cities like Brockton, Worcester, and so forth. And, you know, people have to get to work. And uh, particularly if you want to do something to address our sky-high income inequality problems. Right, right. And, you know, a lot of people, you'll hear people talk about avoiding Logan by going to TF Green. How long will that last? You know what I mean? People kind of have these managed workarounds and or going to Manchester, New Hampshire. As the circle widens, that's going to become more and more tough. Bring on the gondolas. Bring That's what I said. Yeah, the talk of gondolas in, <laughs> the, in gondolas. the seaport. The gondolas. gondolas. Excuse me. <laughs> the MBTA announced a record offer of that. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I do need you to identify yourselves first. Who are you? Hi, this is Kate Merrill. And Chris McKinnon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was shot at once <laughs> in Oklahoma. Oh, you were? Yeah. Yeah, we were doing this crazy story and rolled up into the middle of nowhere and the person pulled out a shotgun and was like, get off the car. Before we even got out of the car. I, was I like, had a shotgun pulled on me too. Things Seriously? we have in common. Where were you, Tennessee? No, I was in Nashville, New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> I expect that from Tennessee, yeah, not New Hampshire. No, though. I was in New Hampshire. Yeah, we got out and um, we were training a new person on the desk, a new desk assistant, and he was with us, and I was sort of showing him how you report and what you do, and we had to go knock on someone's door to get their comment on some story, and I was kind of explaining to him, and we walked up to the door, and we hadn't even gone to the door, and the guy walked out of the door with a shotgun, and he said, if you don't get off my property, I'm going to shoot both of you right now, and this poor kid looked at me with panic look in his eye, and I said, okay, <laughs> we just turned around, we backed away from the situation, and we got in the car, and poor kid wanted no part of being a reporter ever again and I said that normally doesn't happen and when they bring out a gun you just leave right away yeah Yeah. safety is number one but don't you think it's good when assignment desk people do get out of the building and actually see what you go through yeah out there because sometimes they're like why didn't you get the interview yeah someone pulled a gun on me yeah that's not a good enough excuse I wish I could tell you that we're going to be able to stop all interference, but that just wouldn't be realistic. There will always be bad actors in the world, and we can't prevent all governments from all interference. But we can make it harder. We can make it much harder. And that's what we're going to focus on doing. Uh, John, I know he's not one of your favorite people. Marky Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I don't know him. Right, no. Uh, and uh, I must say, uh, you have to tip your cap to mm-hmm. his business acumen. He went from being a sort of a, a loser undergraduate at Harvard uh, to being uh, the CEO of the world's most richest and most powerful company. However, unfortunately, there's a lot of baggage there. And now all that baggage is he is being called to account for. Uh, tomorrow, he starts two days of testimony before congressional committees. And uh, already they've released uh, one of his opening statements to one of the committees. What do you think so far? For, first, of all, first of all, what do you think he should have said when, you, when we've seen him on this sort of apology tour? You know, I would leave that to the PR spin experts. It seems to me that what he should have been doing all along, in addition to making gobs of money, 
I mean, I think we're all capitalists yeah, here. Sure. Absolutely. You, bro, it's fine to make money. Yeah. I'm trying to make okay, money. Okay, <laughs> excellent. We all are. Um, what he should have been doing all along is conducting himself and his business with some reasonable modicum of social responsibility and accountability. To hear Mark Zuckerberg yeah. tell it, that's all he's been eating, sleeping, and dreaming about ever since he was back in the dorm at Harvard. A couple little bites from his opening statement that he'll deliver tomorrow before the House Commerce and Energy Committee. Quote, my top priority has always been our social mission of connecting people, building community, and bringing the world closer together. Later on, I want to be clear about what our priority is. Protecting our community is more important than maximizing our profits. Well, don't you think this, this all this touchy-feely, techy, new world stuff, I mean, we were saying earlier, Steve Jobs did such an outstanding job mm-hmm. branding himself as this sort of... Um, you know, liberal arts-loving genius who brought the Renaissance to tech and combined everything. That it, it, it cast this artificial halo around tech companies in general that they are always benevolent and, let's face and it, people love the tech. Do you they love sh- product, They're bringing down the establishment. Remember exactly, the famous yes. Super Bowl ad? Well, right, exactly. 1984, the, the woman throwing the uh, the hammer into right. the Big Brother image? Exactly. And instead they become the Big so Brother. Do you think, I mean, that's, this is the problem. You think people have bought in to the image and they really do think... Well, They're there for the user. Well, not anymore. No. I mean, not, Zuckerberg. This is a huge. With his ham handed, greed crazed uh, uh, indifference to reality, life in the bubble, he, I think, is what's going to bring this to a crashing halt here. And you're already seeing it in the turn away from Facebook among younger users. And uh, polling is showing that tech in general, and first of all, let's stipulate, Facebook is not the only bad guy that's been abusing their power and uh, exploiting consumer data. Well, you saw what went on with the Uber CEO. All kinds Twitter, of people had issues. Twitter has been a bad citizen. I mean, Here's an interesting story from Business Insider that back in 2004, when he was at Harvard, um, he decided to go into access the email accounts to just see if he could of editors of The Crimson, the Harvard undergraduate newspaper, and review their emails. He described to his friend at the time, he used his site, and I'm quoting here from the piece now, thefacebook.com, remember when it was the Facebook, to look up members of the site who identified themselves as members of the Crimson. Then he examined a log of failed logins to see if any of the Crimson members had ever entered an incorrect password into thefacebook.com. If the cases in which they had en- in the cases in which they had entered failed logins, Mark tried to use them to access the Crimson members' Harvard email accounts. He successfully accessed two of them. Here's another little tidbit from history. 2010, after Facebook violated user privacy by making all sorts of info public without consent or warning, uh, he again responded with one of his patented apologies in an op-ed in the Washington Post, quote, we just missed the mark, he said. We heard the feedback. There needs to be a simpler way to control your information. In the coming weeks, this is 2010, we will add privacy controls 
that are much simpler to use, end quote. 2010, eight years later, they just announced with great fanfare, oh, we're consolidating our privacy controls, which are currently scattered over about two dozen impenetrable parts of our website. We're going to consolidate them on one page to make it easier to use. Just unbelievable... Uh, flagrant, shameless fraudulence. I actually heard someone say some, a very, making a very interesting point. How much do you want to bet Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and the other upper management team's information wasn't hacked? Oh, we, oh not at that? all. Oh, we know. How is that? We know that they have all sorts of privacy controls on right. their data of course. that are not available of to course. the average oh, no. Jane So and when it first emerged, that was what was so cool about it. All these people from their high school were finding you again, right? Remember how many marriages it broke up? <laughs> people yeah. from their high schools were finding people again. So I think that we all have gone, you know, most adults have gone through school. You see questions on a, you know, a form. You feel you have to answer them. Well, this was... If it's there. This was Zuckerberg's genius. Yeah. Okay. He understood from early on when he saw the astonishing success of the Facebook.com at Harvard yeah. that people were willing to part with all this info. But that was their business model. They ruthlessly exploited it in the search of ever-growing profits and market dominance. But they want us to think that, oh, no, we're just these benevolent folks who want to create a better world. And these bad things have happened. We feel terrible about it. I mean, I, and look, the, the Facebook, as I mentioned before, is not the only no, uh, bad not actor the only in bad tech. Guy. And look beyond tech. I mean, how do you like Wells Fargo? Sure. Uh, uh, signing you up for products that you never signed up for and right. charging you for exactly. it. And lying about yeah. it. So, you know, it, it's a more of a broader social yes. problem. And it's also becoming a broader legislative question. There was a really interesting uh, professor from the NYU School of Business saying how long until the, some of these tech companies are broken up. That it becomes an antitrust issue. Uh, he was making the point. Facebook has ac- assembled more people globally than Christianity, for example. And there has never been anything in the history of the world that brought this many people together. Almost, Mark Zuckerberg, I think, seems like the kid who didn't realize they're trying to build the train tracks as the train is coming, that old cartoon. So does the government step in? Oh, absolutely. They're going to have to. I mean, in the meantime, they've engaged in classic uh, monopoly predatory practices. By every time a, a potential... Quasi competitor emerges. Snapchat. Mm, oh, they just buy them. App, they buy them right up. Right, Instagram. Now, this is classic monopolistic behavior. The government stepped in and broke up the railroads at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. They stepped in and broke up the uh, Ma Bell. Right, AT and T broke bells. up, and it and all now worked it, itself out. It's going to happen again. Yeah, yeah. And you know, right. I, I'm not exactly brimming over with confidence the in Washington regulators. <sighs> To, to do a, a great job of it, but anything's better than having it in the hands of this uh, this clueless swine. 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 That's a great place to end. That's a great place to end. Okay, let's look at it. Put it online. We got one rolling. Put it online. Jim, Bob Knight is here. Bob, how are you able to defeat Temple? We scored more points than they did. That's something that you may have missed in the news media, that the team, when the buzzer blows... Yeah, 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 yeah. How did you get get around the matchup? 
up to be Captain Steve Nile. How did this happen? I only did it because you were coming. Leslie Visser is a pioneer in sports broadcasting. She was born in Massachusetts, educated at Boston College, and after a career as a sports writer at the Boston Globe, she went on to a storied career which continues at CBS Sports. She was the, is the first woman to report from the sidelines of the Super Bowl, the first woman to be an NFL analyst on network television, the first woman recognized by the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Her new book is Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk, a memoir of breaking barriers. And Leslie, thank you for speaking with us. Wow, Paula, could you say it all again? (laughs) I would have that emblazoned on some sort of placard that I carried around if I were you. You know, let's talk about your childhood a little bit because you were born here in Quincy, Massachusetts. Some people might not realize that. You went to South Hadley High School and then Boston College, but you moved around a lot as a child. Yes, um, it's really kind of interesting story. My dad... Visser is a very common Dutch name, and my dad grew up in Amsterdam. Uh, He wasn't Jewish, but he grew up under the Nazi occupation, under the Nazi boot for six years. I mean, everybody was starving, so he came to go to school Mm -hmm. in Boston, and then we moved around quite a bit until my parents got divorced. But one assignment I had from CBS was they sent me to the fall of the Berlin Wall, Mm. which was so profound, Paul, you could imagine People walk for days to get through that, you know, from Dresden and Potsdam to get through that Brandenburg Gate. And for me, it was profound knowing that my dad had grown up in under that kind of situation. You know, he always said, gosh, if you're in America, you're on third base. Not that he knew what third base was. Right. <laughs> but and, and, and your job was to cover the way the fall of the Berlin Wall would then affect sports, because we remember what uh, what the Olympics were like before dealing with the Soviets and uh, what had gone on between East and West Berlin. So that was what you covered after the wall fell. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, we had Walter Cronkite. You know, mine was a very small slice, but it was an important one. The East Germans, they had member Katarina Witt. Everybody remember oh, yeah. her, the gorgeous skater. And they had lots of swimmers. They would take all the gold medals, and the country wasn't that big, but the athletes went home with all the medals. So they were, of course, um, inspected and taken care of by the Stasi, the uh, East German secret police. And... Uh, once the wall broke open, you really didn't find athletes from East Germany going on to dominate. So you were able to cover such a fascinating story because of all the experience you had. I know that you're one of uh, these uh, people like myself by 11 or 12. You knew you wanted to do this. You knew you wanted to be a sports writer. Uh, did you write for the Heights at BC? I did. And uh, yes, you're correct that um, I had a passion for sports from an early age, like maybe you had it for news. Mm-hmm. I was lucky I, I came of an age. Um, I knew I wanted to be, which is where the title of my book mm-hmm. comes from. I wanted to be a sports writer when I was 10 or 11. And we were living in Cincinnati. Yeah. And I said to my mother, you know what? Um, when I grow up, I really want to be a sports writer, which is like saying I want to go to the moon. Sure. Uh, and I mean, obviously, the job didn't exist for women. And, you know, people can change your thinking in an instant. And she did. She looked down at me and she said, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. And so that's where the title of your of your memoir comes from. I love that. When you graduated from Boston College and you went to work at the Globe, uh, you were at the Boston Globe in 1974 
and I know you probably worked alongside people like Bud Collins and Will McDonough. What did you learn from writers like those men? Thanks for asking that, because they were really my mentors. Um, I went to the Globe on a Carnegie Foundation grant, which um, they were given to women in the country, this is the early 70s, where 95% of the jobs were white collar, which they were all jobs. You know, there were no, women were just starting to go to law school, just starting to go to medical school. Right. And I wanted to be a sports writer, which must have really jumped out, <laughs> jumped out at them. So we had a series of interviews. Uh, they were in Pittsburgh, where Andrew Carnegie was from, and then finally in New York, where the Carnegie Corporation is. And so I went to intern at the Globe. And yes, uh, we're all in halls of fame. I mean, I went there, and it was Bud Collins, on tennis, Will McDonough on football, mm-hmm. Peter Gammons on baseball, Bob Ryan on basketball. So it was just enormous. Um, and then subsequent to me, they, of course, hired Jackie McMullen. So right. The Globe has really, um, and you know, the people who did high school football were Shaughnessy, DuPont, and myself. You know, there's so much talk about women in the workplace over the last couple of months, women in media in particular. Uh, people who are on camera. It sounds as though you were embraced in the Globe newsroom by the sports department. You know, is there anything that you would want to tell a young woman now that helped you entering such a male-dominated field? Yeah, uh, there are three things are at work there. One, uh, I think you have to carry yourself like the job is what's important to you. And uh, I really felt I was representing the Globe. I was representing the Visser name. And uh, sure, players, you know, hit on me. But no one, I've had four men mentor my career. That's mm-hmm. why I've lasted 40 years. And not one of them, not Vince Doria at the Boston Globe or Ted Shaker, Sean McManus or my ultimate boss, Les Mundes at mm-hmm. CBS, where I've been there now 30 years. Not not one moment uh, of one day was I harassed that had anything to do with my assignments mm-hmm. or economically. So I, I think, you know, it's not the popular topic now. I wish I had, oh, I, well, I have one story. The first time I interviewed uh, Bill Parcells, I was really nervous. And he leaned over and he said to me, hey, how much would it cost to keep you? And, you know, I got my back up and I said, well, the Bartolo money. I don't know if you remember the Bartolo family right. owned all the malls in America plus the 49 What did he mean by that? Uh, well, he said, how much would it cost to keep you? And I said, oh, the Bartolo money. Right. He, he, he brushed my arm off. He said, hey, you're not that great. <laughs> so it sounds, I've heard you say before, you turned to humor a lot in those kinds of situations. I did. It was my default mechanism. It was always my default mechanism. Even with players, you know, I would say to them, now your mother didn't teach you to talk like that, which really mm. takes it off, you know. Yeah, it was disarming. Someone's mother into it. They become six years old. So, uh, yeah, humor. Gosh, you guys work in Boston. You know, don't take the floor if you don't have something funny or original to say. Now, so how did you make the transition then from working at the Globe to CBS Sports? Oh, I hope you didn't see it. It was like I had rigor mortis. Oh, God, it was terrible. <laughs> Everyone's first moment on television is cringeworthy, right? <laughs> well, you know what? That I mean, the good and the bad is that I was qualified enough 
not to have to start in a small market in either print or television. That was the good news. Uh, the first assignment I had, of course, it was in the fall, and it was uh, the U.S. Open tennis. And now you guys take this for granted, but nobody does. When you when you first go on television and someone's talking in your ear while you're interviewing someone else, you know, it's so that's tough. So, yeah, you know this. So I would stop. So I'd be with Martina or somebody, mm -hmm. and then I would just stop because the producer was saying, okay, one more question, or throw it over sure. to Pat O'Brien, or whatever. <laughs> and, so I, and then he'd be screaming at me, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> the ultimate on-the-job training, right? Yeah, so I really was really stiff, really, in the beginning. And, and all the the people who ran CBS would be like, just be yourself, be the person we hired. But yeah. I don't think when you're learning network television, mm. it's, I think it's hard at first. And you know, looking back, it, clearly you had your expertise. You had written for the number one sports newsroom in the country. You knew what you were doing. You had authenticity. You grew to be good on the air. But even with all of that, it had to be a challenge to cover the NFL as a woman, to be the first woman at that level, to be in the locker rooms, on the sidelines. It's, you know, obviously you can't tell every story, but if you could encapsulate the entire experience, what was it that propelled you forward through difficulties and truly made players and owners and coaches accept your presence? Uh, um, Paula, I'll tell you two stories that answer that. One of them is when John Madden told me I was caught in what he called a two-way go, which is a great expression. Mm -hmm. And I can remember the, the, um, there weren't provisions for equality. The locker rooms weren't open for the first seven years I covered the NFL. Mm -hmm. So I'd be out there freezing in the parking lot. And so I might have to go to the bathroom, but I would say, gosh, if I go to the bathroom, I'm going to miss Steve Grogan or, you know, whoever it was that I had to talk to, Sam Bam Cunningham, people don't know, there was actually an older brother of Randall Cunningham, <laughs> but um, I would stand out there and I had to go to the bathroom and I didn't want to complain to the Patriots because I didn't want them to say, see, a woman can't cover us, and I mm -hmm. didn't want to complain to the Globe because I didn't want the Globe to say, well, yeah, I guess a woman can't cover the NFL, so I would just stand out there with my legs crossed, hoping that whoever I had to interview would come out pretty quickly. Mm. So that, that I remember that, and the uh, the other thing I just changed within the last year, um, Paula, did you see the movie Hidden Figures? Yes. Okay. It's tremendous. Tremendous, tremendous. And I always used to tell as a joke how there were no ladies' rooms because, of course, there were no other women. Mm. So I used to. Um, sit in the press box, Patriots had the ball, first and 10 on their own 20, and I would see if I could go down the press box, across the field, it was then Schaefer Stadium, go to the one public ladies room, and get back up the elevator before the Patriots punted. And I used to tell it as a joke. You know, I, I tried to laugh it off, but it actually wasn't a joke. Well, Leslie Visser, your memoir is Sometimes You Have to Cross When It Says Don't Walk, a memoir of breaking barriers, which you certainly have done. Uh, we're so proud of you here as part of the CBS family. I'm proud of you as part of the Boston College family. And thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, Paula, you were great to talk to. Let's do it again once the podcast is uh, in its like um, third month or something. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. So that's 
it's interesting, and that's Leslie Visser's take on how she chose to handle some of those interactions. She talked about Bill Parcells. She talked about being in locker rooms and using humor. That was how she would um, kind of get these guys to be a little embarrassed if they were saying inappropriate things to her. Other people might not think that that's the way to go. Um, I think women are always feeling as though, um, why do I have to laugh and smile and joke? to make men feel more comfortable. Why is that up to me to do that? And if you say to someone, just don't talk to me that way in in a professional setting, you know, you're a scold. You're the B word. You're, you know, so it, it, you know, interesting from her time, how she felt that she needed to handle it that way. But my favorite thing that she said was that when she said she wanted to go into sports broadcasting, her mother didn't blink, you know, and and encouraged her. And And I think that's just such a good lesson for women of... Every kind of career. I mean, I super connect with her because Mm. before here, I was working in a very male-dominated, can I say on here? Absolutely. I don't know. Let's say a male-dominated sports entertainment. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) male-dominated sports entertainment. Like uh, something very similar. I would say very similar. Um, On the road with the uh, talent, Mm -hmm. you know, working very closely Mm -hmm. with them in an interview setting. Uh, I can agree where humor definitely helps. Yeah. Humor definitely helps. It can diffuse a situation. It can diffuse a situation. And uh, it's tough. It's tough. And I think she just comes from a different era. Yes. You have to be strong in so many different ways now when you deal with that. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's humor, but also you need to take it upon yourself to go, I am taking a different path. Yes. And I won't go along with maybe my treatment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always work out well. No. You know, sometimes you're right. right. You're scolded or you're called a bad name, but... You have to, you know, look inside yeah. yourself and realize, ah, what's my self worth? And yeah. you got to deal with it. Yeah, a different time. John, <laughs> John Keller, John. No, look, <laughs> listen. Uh, uh, you don't need me to tell you. In life, uh, there's sometimes you need the carrot, sometimes you need the stick. Sometimes you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. On the other hand, civil rights shouldn't be a, a question, a, a respectful, appropriate treatment in a workplace, certainly. Sometimes you really don't be a law. matter of you having to finesse right. the situation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do we get to yes? Are we ever going to live in a culture where everybody understands and obeys the rules? Uh, you know, until we do, uh, a lot of you're going to have to rely on your wits to a great extent. And the great lesson of Leslie Visser's career is, from the very beginning, all the way through, she was successful because she was good. Yeah, and that's the yep. bottom line. Yeah, that helps. She was valuable to her news organizations, and that's what she did to help herself the most. So uh, this was really fun. So we are launching Studio BZ here. We're going to have podcasts every week. We had recorded four episodes kind of gearing up and getting ready for this. So they are live. You can access those episodes as well. Yeah, and uh, please let us know what you think about what you're hearing. If you love it, if you hate it, somewhere in between, you wish we were talking about Fill in the blank, please. That's what. Uh, that's extremely useful information to us. We won't abuse you or compromise your your data. No, uh, we will just take your suggestions and just run want with your them. Ideas. Because obviously, we want this to be worth your while. And John, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, at Keller at Large. What, do you want to give yours? 
I am not on Twitter. Twitter. I am at Paula Eben WBZ. So we want you to subscribe. We want you to tell your friends. If you want to hear from guests like Joe Kennedy, uh, Congressman Capuano, Congressman Stephen Lynch, Leslie Visser, other people who have books out, who have interesting things to say, authors, particularly local authors in our area. This is the place to be. You watch WBZ on TV for news, you're going to want to follow this podcast. Oh, Bill Shields talking about storm coverage. And hopefully, in addition to hearing from different WBZ personalities and and, and hearing us uh, uh, share our thoughts about what's going on, hopefully... Uh, everything we talk about will be something that's relevant to the way you live and and useful to you in that way, or at least interesting. And you can add it to your podcast diet for the week. Go to iTunes and download Never run out. All right. For Studio WBZ and John Keller and Brooke, our producer, thanks for being here. And Jonathan Case. And Jonathan Case, their mastermind behind the scenes. I'm Paula Evan. Thanks so much. You're going to want her to do that one again. She yeah. said Studio WBZ. Did I really? I, you know what? I, wow. I say WBZ so many times a day. I can't yeah. suddenly just yeah. say BZ. Yeah. Or we could keep that. Just oh, hear no. me go, you're going to want her to do well, that again. Uh, uh, this.